Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, tonight I proceed to deliver my third and last lecture in this year's series of Patel Memorial Lectures. As you know, the subject I have taken for my lectures this year is Kashmir, Retrospect and Prospect. First, I looked at Kashmir in retrospect from the point of view of its historical, political and constitutional background. Then I addressed myself to two questions. The first question was about the accession of Kashmir to India. And having examined the material points relating to it, I came to the conclusion that the accession of Kashmir to India is unconditional, valid, final and irrevocable. Then I examined the problem of plebiscite and I expressed the view that for political, constitutional, sociological and human considerations, India will not be prepared to hold a plebiscite now or any time in future. Having looked at Kashmir in retrospect, we have now reached a stage when it would be legitimate to inquire as to the future of Kashmir and India vis-a-vis -vis Pakistan. Let me first consider the future of Kashmir in relation to India. That takes me to the problem of the immediate, urgent needs of Kashmir, which, if satisfied, would make its future bright, prosperous, and happy. Sir Albion Banerjee, who was for many years the Diwan of Jammu and Kashmir, said in the early 30s, Jammu and Kashmir state is laboring under many disadvantages with a large Mohammedan population absolutely illiterate, laboring under poverty, and very low economic conditions of living in the villages, and practically governed like dumb, driven cattle. When I am thinking of the future of Kashmir, I am not thinking of the citizens of Kashmir who are economically sound, socially well-placed, and are otherwise articulate in public life. I am thinking of the poor, humble, ignorant citizens of Kashmir without reference to their religion, caste, creed, or community. It is these dumb people whose future must be the primary concern of the administration of Kashmir. These people are spread over many villages. They are ignorant, hungry, illiterate, and often suffer from disease. They have not even modest huts to live in. And many times in the cold winter of Kashmir, they have not enough means to clothe themselves to protect their bodies. It is the dumb miseries of these people to which the administration must immediately respond. Your religious disputes, your ideological conflicts, 
and we were told debates evoke no response in their sullen hearts because their basic necessities as human beings have yet to be adequately met. It is true that India has generously spent literally crores of rupees for the development of Kashmir. But the complaint in the public mind is that these grants have not always reached their true intended beneficiaries. If the administration of the state is corrupt or is driven by jealousies and conflicts within itself, is not purposeful or efficient, the mere fact that crores of rupees have been spent in Kashmir by the government of India brings no consolation to the hundreds of thousands of Kashmir's poor population. The problem posed by the presence of these dumb, helpless people must be the first concern of the administration of Kashmir. And that, in my opinion, constitutes the first urgent need of the Kashmir of today and tomorrow. Next in the importance of priorities is the requirement that the political atmosphere of Kashmir must no longer be allowed to suffer from any ambivalence, uncertainty, or doubt. The debate as to what is to happen to Kashmir in future must be brought to an absolute end. And India's position in regard to the status of Kashmir as an inseparable part of India must never be the subject of debate inside the Indian territory. The common men and women of Kashmir are literally fed up with this atmosphere of uncertainty and doubt. The administration must consistently, deliberately, and in a determined and dedicated manner create confidence in the minds of the public that there is no longer any doubt or uncertainty about the future of Kashmir in relation to India. Doubt and uncertainty invariably inject various unhealthy tendencies in the public mind. And this danger must be immediately and irrevocably arrested. There has been some debate in India from time to time whether Article 370 of the Constitution should now be abrogated. I have already referred to the circumstances under which Article 370 came to be included in the Constitution. Since this article was included in the Constitution, much progress has been made in the matter of formally integrated, integrating Kashmir with India and bringing her in line with the rest of the constituent states of India. It may be that in due course, Article 370 may be abrogated and Kashmir may then become exactly similar to all the other constituent states of India. But the abrogation of Article 370, in my opinion, is not a matter of such immediate importance that any debate should be held on it or any particular insistence shown in propagating it. What is really important and significant is not the existence of Article 370 today in the Constitution or its absence tomorrow. What is significant and important is the com complete emotional, cultural, economic, and ideological integration of Kashmir with the rest of India. The problem of integration 
is not unique to Kashmir. We are facing that problem in one form or another in regard to the rest of the constituent states. And so all patriotic citizens should concentrate on taking such steps earnestly and quickly as would help the real integration of Kashmir with the rest of India. Too much importance given to the continuance or abrogation of Article 370 is apt to distort the real nature of today's urgent requirements. I am satisfied that in order to accelerate the process of integration of Kashmir with the rest of the country, it is of great importance to spread the doctrine of secularism amongst not only the classes of Kashmir, but its masses as well. Secularism is a revolutionary concept which India has accepted by her constitution. Indian secularism is not anti-religion or anti-God. It is positive, constructive, a creative concept. It recognizes the importance and relevance of all religions practiced in India, and Kashmir is no exception. It concedes that religion should enjoy full freedom, but it insists that religion should not trespass into secular matters concerning citizenship and the rights and obligations attaching to it. In the discussion or decision of socio-economic and political matters, religion has no relevance at all. So long as religion keeps within its sacred and solemn bounds, the state guarantees to religion complete freedom and does not prefer any one religion to any other. Citizenship is an entirely secular matter, and all citizens are absolutely equal under the Indian Constitution. We are not a theocratic state. We are a secular state. And the concept of secularism is the foundation of the democratic way of life we have adopted. It is therefore absolutely essential that secularism should become a part of every citizen's faith and belief. The spread of secularism would be a great source of strength to the process of national integration. Allied to secularism is the doctrine of social justice. This doctrine is writ large in every important provision of the Indian Constitution. Social equality and economic justice are the watchwords of Indian democracy. Indian democracy has deliberately adopted the path of a welfare state, and its declared objective is to establish a new social order by democratic means. Socialism has to be achieved in a democratic way under the rule of law. The quicker this basic concept on which Indian democracy is founded is known by the people, the safer would be the future of Indian democracy. In order to spread the doctrine of secularism and social justice, it is necessary to inculcate in people's minds a rational and scientific approach to all problems. By and large, the Indian community is still a traditional community. Its members are apt to look back rather than look ahead. They are apt to lean on ancient authority than adopt a modern approach. Traditionalism, which creates chauvinism, both in the Hindu and Muslim masses, has to be conquered by the use of reason. A spirit of modernism, which looks forward and hopes to create a new social order 
based on economic justice and social equality and which treats religion, sex, caste or community as wholly irrelevant has yet to be properly created in our country. This is a slow, laborious process. And in this process, we must rely not on political power, but upon intellectuals who are progressive in their approach and who are dedicated to the establishment of modernism in this country. I feel certain that if only the intellectuals of Kashmir start a crusade for spreading these basic doctrines throughout Kashmir and receive strong and spontaneous support from the members of the intellectual community in the rest of India, the process of making Kashmir's future bright will be accelerated. Having indicated broadly what I deem to be the urgent needs of Kashmir, I will now proceed to examine the two nations theory which is often introduced in the discussion of Kashmir. The two nations theory is legally and constitutionally unsound and socially and sociologically reactionary. This theory was never accepted by the Congress prior to independence and has been totally rejected by the Indian Constitution. The two nations theory proceeds on the fallacious and irrational assumption that religion makes a nation. The presence of several multiracial, multireligious, multilingual nations in the world is a standing testimony to the fact that the concept of a nation has no direct relation with the concept of religion. Gandhiji revolted against this two nations theory and he expressed his emphatic disapproval of the pernicious doctrine of the two nations which came to be preached in support of the creation of Pakistan prior to 1947 by declaring that Pakistan would be born over his dead body. Gandhiji's solicitude for the poor and humble of this earth needs no mention. He always claimed to be and was a son of the earth and history has acclaimed him as one of the very noblest. In Gandhiji's philosophy and practice, religion made no difference whatever. In fact, he revered all religions alike and loved the followers of all religions like his own children. No wonder he is regarded by the country as the father of the nation. When Gandhiji expressed his wholehearted condemnation of the attempt to create Pakistan on the theory of two nations, what Gandhiji meant was that this pernicious doctrine would mean disaster both for India and Pakistan, and that has proved to be true. It is a matter of historical irony that on the 15th of August 47, when both India and Pakistan celebrated the birth of the two respective countries with great acclaim and celebration, at midnight, Gandhiji put out the light in his small hut at Naukhali. So far as Gandhiji was concerned, the light of nationalism, which transcended religious differences, was put out by the creation of two different states. I have referred to this incident to emphasize the fact that even before Pakistan was born, the Congress never subscribed to the two nations theory. It is also necessary to remember that the formation of Pakistan and India did not, in fact, proceed on any such theory. If the division of India was based on the basis of Muslims being a nation, 
separate from the Hindus and the rest, it would follow as a matter of constitutional law that Muslims who remained in India would be aliens. And that is a proposition which is entirely unthinkable. I have just indicated that every single provision of the Constitution totally rejects the theory of two nations and proclaims that in India, Hindus and Muslims, Christians, Sikhs, Parsis and Jews and all others, whatever their religion, are citizens who are equal in their rights and in their obligations. Besides, if the basis of partition was that the Muslims form a separate nation, why was it necessary to hold a plebiscite in the northwest frontier province where 90% of the population was Muslim? Why again were the legislatures consulted in Bengal and in the Punjab, which had Muslim majorities? It is true that in the result, the provinces which had Muslim majorities formed Pakistan. But that is very much different from saying that the division of India into two dominions was then made on the basis that the Hindus and Muslims formed two different nations. The presence of over 50 million Muslims in India who are and are entitled to be treated as citizens is a standing and effective answer to this reactionary unsound theory of two nations. India thus totally and unreservedly rejects the theory of two nations and regards it as a medieval, irrational and unscientific. Pakistan, however, seems to subscribe to the theory of two nations. It is tragic beyond words that the birth of Pakistan was due mainly to the campaign which was started by the League on the basis of this theory. The hate Hindu campaign was the real motive power behind the agitation for the creation of Pakistan. Whether or not the ultimate partition of India could have been avoided is a matter on which the final verdict of history will be pronounced after some time. It is true that the historical background in India, the accentuation of communal differences brought about by the British government during their regime, and mistakes unwittingly committed by political parties of different schools did contribute to make the relations between Hindu and Muslims very bitter a few years before 1947. And when actual partition was made, Lord Mountbatten came with a rigid and fixed timetable, and that exerted an incredible amount of pressure on the minds of all those who participated at the highest political level in the execution of the plan of partition. Some publicists have expressed the view that if after winning the 1937 elections, the Congress had not accepted the doctrine, doctrinaire approach and had agreed to form a government in coalition with the League, perhaps the subsequent political history of India might have been different. That appears to be the view of such an eminent person as Abdul Kalam Azhar. Some others have advocated the theory that the overwhelming success which the Congress achieved at the elections of 1937 made the Congress leaders oblivious of the true dimensions of the faith of the Muslim masses in the Muslim leaders. The slogan of mass Muslim contact was no doubt evolved with the highest secular and patriotic motive. But in the context of our political life then, it was unrealistic and perhaps tended to defeat its own purpose. It is also not unlikely that the Khilafat movement started by Gandhiji 
indirectly helped to create and accentuate Muslim obscurantism in public life. And as a response to Muslim obscurantism, Hindu chauvinism became more vocal in the political field of India. Jinnah initially was a rationalist and a modernist, and he was in no manner of speaking a religious man in the traditional Muslim sense. But he was an aggressive personality. And it is thought by many that if his self-respect had not been hurt by Muslim leaders who had joined Gandhiji in his Khilafat movement, Jinnah would not have turned to the fanatic ways which he later adopted. Indian nationalism, also according to some, was more negative in tone and its positive content of secularism and a progressive approach in social economic matters was not as strong, articulate and popular as it should have been. Nationalist Muslims, in their righteous enthusiasm for the cause of India's freedom, according to some, did not take as much care as they should have to talk with the Muslim masses, educate them, and be with them, and involve them in larger numbers in the fight for political freedom, emotionally and actively. These, however, are futile considerations. And as I have had occasion to say, of all sad words of pen and tongue, the saddest are these it might have been. Besides, one can be wise after the event, and so it will serve no purpose to pursue the thoughts that seem natural in the light of the hindsight of history. The fact which stares both India and Pakistan in the face today, and will continue to do so for quite some time, is that on the side of Pakistan, its creation was based mainly on dissatisfaction with India and hatred of the Hindu community. In our dealing with Pakistan, we should not ignore this psychological factor. Indeed, after India became free and Pakistan was born, Pakistan consistently chose to describe India as Bharat, and that was intended to emphasize the Hindu character of India. Those who started this practice, no doubt, wanted to belittle the importance of Indian secularism. But they did not realize that if India had really become Bharat, that is to say a Hindu democracy, its 50 million, million Muslim citizens would have been rendered aliens. But whatever Pakistan said or did, under Nehru's leadership and under the inspiration of the secular nationalism which inspired the Congress struggle for freedom, India has chosen to remain secular and has consistently made efforts to achieve that end. I am not suggesting that India has succeeded in achieving that object. Far from it. There are still several problems on which the minorities may have to be given satisfaction. But one fact cannot be denied, even by the most prejudiced of India's critics, and that is that Indian democracy has consistently made deliberate efforts under the provision of its constitution to march ahead in the pursuit of its secular ideal of socio-economic justice. Pakistan has problems of her own. The vast distance that divides the western part of Pakistan from its eastern wing undoubtedly creates many complex, difficult, and delicate problems. Pakistan also has to face the problem of poverty like India. And having chosen a theocratic way of life, Pakistan is naturally working under strong, though not always overtly expressed, pulls and pressures of reactionary, unprogressive religious ideology. Acting under the totality of these pulls and pressures, 
Pakistan has persuaded herself that her claim to Kashmir is irrefutable. Her political leadership sometimes also feels tempted to divert the attention of the Pakistani public from the grim economic realities of their daily life by starting wild talk against India and at suitable junctures embarking on some diversionary military activity as well. When I am dealing with the future pattern of the relations between India and Pakistan, I would always try to keep this aspect of the matter in my mind. Unless we objectively bear in mind the currents and cross-currents which determine the policy of Pakistan, we would not be able to arrive at a satisfactory settlement with her on any issue. Pakistan's attitude and approach to India was typically illustrated by the answers which President Ayub Khan gave to questions put to him at the end of his speech at the Royal Institute of International Affairs Chatham House in London on the 18th of November 66. President Ayub Khan is reported to have said that the root of the problem was the conflicting ideologies of India and Pakistan. Muslim Pakistan believed in common brotherhood and giving people equal opportunity. India and Hinduism are based on inequality and on color and race. Their basic concept is the caste system. It is also reported that according to him, Hindus and Muslims could never live under one government, although they might live side by side. This tirade, delivered by such a responsible person as the President of Pakistan, in unqualified and extravagant words, illustrates how even sober minds can be persuaded to take a distorted view of ideas, events and policies under the pressure of anger and frustration. Hinduism has many infirmities to remove. But to say that Hindus and Muslims can never live together betrays a medieval, irrational, theocratic approach which is historically untrue and which is totally rejected by the Indian constitution. President Ayub Khan, in his anger, did not realize that as the president of a nation which has a very large Hindu population, it was improper, to say the least, on his part, to condemn Hinduism, Hindu religion, and Hindus in such utterly extravagant words. Whatever else may be said about Hindu philosophy and Hindu social customs, one claim can be legitimately made, and that is that amongst the religions of the world, the Hindu religion justly boasts that it is Catholic in its outlook and recognizes that many paths can lead to truth. Tolerance on which the Indian constitution and the secularism are based is thus a natural corollary to the broad and basic concept of Hindu philosophy, which is indeed a broad and progressive way of life. I have referred to the outburst of President Ayub Khan, not out of anger, nor with a view to protest against it, but only to emphasize how even wise persons holding high positions can be tempted to indulge in tirades which are totally inconsistent with the high office they hold and opposed to all modern, rational, progressive ways of thinking. India has chosen her way, and until Pakistan gives up her theocratic approach, India should not feel agitated, angry, or disappointed. India must still pursue her chosen line of secularism and hope, prayerfully, that sooner rather than later, the voice of reason will be heard in Pakistan and that Pakistan also will choose the modern way of life. Whenever persons steeped in theocratic prejudice fulminate against secularism, 
Secularists should have the equanimity and wisdom to say, in sorrow rather than anger, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I should therefore like to repeat, with all the earnestness at my command, that so far as India is concerned, she should not adopt the posture which Pakistan can and does adopt. India must still adhere to the secular, democratic way of life which she has deliberately adopted. We should avoid holding any debate with Pakistan on the issue of Kashmir. We should let Pakistan understand once and for all that so far as India is concerned, Kashmir presents no problem at all. Kashmir is a part of India, and it will remain a part of India so long as India is able to maintain the integrity of her borders. In that sense, Kashmir occupies a very strategic position, and its strategic importance has become all the greater, having regard to the recent ominous developments between India and China on the one hand, and between China and Pakistan on the other. India, therefore, should keep her powder dry and hold herself in readiness to defend her borders wherever they are attacked by any aggressor. But it is not necessary to enter into a debate on the question of Kashmir. Let India be prepared to face the worst while hoping for the best. I have already referred to the fact that the urgent and paramount need of giving the citizens of Kashmir an opportunity to enjoy their democratic rights of life, liberty, and happiness can be met not merely or even mainly by the exercise of political power. 